Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. And the title of my message today, if you are taking notes, is A Particular Set of Skills. A Particular Set of Skills. Now, how many of you recognize this phrase? It seems somewhat familiar to you. Some of you are savvy enough to know that this is, of course, a quote from a very famous Christmas movie uh, called Taken. Um, I know probably a lot of you are in the habit already of watching this movie every single Christmas. It just brings so much Christmas joy uh, to so many. And uh, this, this line, a particular set of skills, comes from a moment in this movie in, in which essentially there's this guy and uh, he is like, he's sort of mysterious in a way and his daughter gets kidnapped and they call him and they want to ransom. And he has this famous line where he like all gruffly tells them over the phone as the camera's pushing in and the mo- music is kind of increasing. He's just like, listen, if it's a ransom you're after, you should know I don't have any money, but what I do have is a particular set of skills. And he says it all gruff, right? Like he just needs to like clear his throat, get a drink of water real quick. But that's how you have to say these lines in these sorts of movies, right? And he tells them that like he's going to essentially seek revenge and make them pay if they don't give his daughter back. And of course, this they don't do it, okay? They don't do it. They test him, which is a bad thing to do because he hunts them down and he gets his daughter, he takes his daughter back uh, only to have her kidnapped many more times in many sequels. And so <laughs> very exciting, very exciting stuff. And here's what you, you probably already know is that there's a lot of movies like this, right? It's like a whole genre of film. There's all these movies where the main character has somebody in their life and something happens to that person and then they have to like go out and make what is wrong right, right? And it's not always a daughter that it happens to. Sometimes it's a father. A lot of times it's a father, right? Um, like this movie, uh, Princess Bride. How many of you have seen this movie? Okay. Another classic Christmas movie, right? And essentially, there's this, this plot that sort of follows it. There's many plots, but there's this one guy uh, named Inigo Montoya, right? And he has this line that he's saying the whole movie because when he was a kid, like some people came to his village, a six-fingered man specifically, and killed his father. And so he's tracking this guy down. And once he finally corners him, he's got this whole thing worked out that he's gonna say, right? He's gonna like aim his sword at them and tell them like, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. Again, you got to do it with the raspy voice or it doesn't play. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And at the very end, when he actually corners the guy, he just keeps yelling it on repeat at the guy and eventually, you know, gets his revenge, right? Um, but it, it doesn't even always have to be like necessarily like a human family member, right? Sometimes it's a daughter. Sometimes it's a father. Sometimes it's a dog. You guys saw John Wick, right? Like they killed his dog. And then he just unleashed all hell, right? And they're like, it's just a dog. And he's like, just a dog, right? And he just goes off and there's this whole story attached to his wife and what the dog actually meant. And he tells them in, in the moment where he's like trying to get them to send a message back, he's like, tell them, tell all of them. And then he tells them that, like, that he's gonna kill every single last person, right? And you believe him and you should because he does. In all of the movies... All of the people, he just, he kills so many people. 
And, uh, and eventually they're just like, man, we should have just left that dog alone. That was a bad, why did we do that, right? And it happens instantaneously, right? It's like as soon as this thing happens and they corner him, he gives him one warning, pops off, kills like 80,000 people. I mean, it is insane the kind of vengeance that this guy seeks out. But it's not always instantaneous in, this, in, the, in these films, right? Sometimes it's more drawn out, right? Which in some ways is even more delicious, right? There's this a little bit older movie uh, based on an, uh, an, uh, an antique piece of literature called The Count of Monte Cristo, right? And where this guy is like, his life is going great. And he's got this so-called best friend who wants everything that he has. And so he gets, he accuses him of something that he didn't do and he gets thrown in this prison and he's imprisoned for like all these years, like up in this like little cave mountain. And he spends 14 years just like being angry and plotting his revenge and like drawing it out very slowly. And when he finally like gets to the moment and the, the, the guy realizes it's him, he's like, he's like, you know, how did you escape? And he's off. And he has this great line where he's like, how did I escape with difficulty? And then he's like, how did I plan this moment with pleasure? Like he couldn't wait to get to this moment. He's been thinking about the deliciousness of this revenge forever. And I, we love movies like this in our culture. There are so many of them. I could go on and on and on and on. There's these movies where somebody who's sort of been pushed around and they've been held down and they've been taken advantage of and they've been treated unfairly and it's just, they've had enough. They get pushed beyond the point of no return and they snap and they go get their revenge and they go out and they make every person pay that ever wronged them. And we love it. Like even the most like, you know, calm and patient and passive among us, we get sucked in. We're watching these movies and we're like, obviously violence is wrong and you would never do that. And halfway through, we're like, kill them, kill their whole family, choke them out. And you're like, grandma, would you, this is, what has come over you? Is she taking her blood pressure pill? And you like, you're nervous, right? But she can't help it. None of us can. We do this. And why is that? Why do we get rolled up in this? I think some of it is, you know, there's a vicariousness to it. Like we love watching other people do what we sometimes wish we could do, but we know we can't do. There's, there's something that we find cathartic about it. There's something invigorating about watching someone who seems powerless in the way that we sometimes feel powerless, rise up and take back their power and assert justice. We love it. And I know some of you are thinking like, I get your point, but like, these aren't really Christmas movies. And I disagree, okay, for a couple of reasons. The first is, it is my belief that any movie you elect to watch on Christmas becomes a Christmas movie, okay? So just love your life and create your own traditions, okay? And the second reason I would disagree that these are not Christmas movies is that if you actually were to go back and you look at the historical context of what is happening at the time that the original biblical Christmas story unfolds, if those people would have gotten the story that they hoped for and prayed for, it would have been this story. It would have been a story that went like this. It would have been a story of exacting the revenge they felt like they were owed. That's what they wanted. And yet it wasn't exactly what they got. Like, let me give you a little bit of context. At, at, the, at the time of the very first Christmas, God's people 
weren't a free, self-governing people. Like they didn't live in this free democracy, right? They were a conquered, enslaved people. Rome ruled the world at this time in human history. And most of this was due to a fierce warrior, one of the famous uh, most famous warriors of all time, Alexander the Great, right? Who conquered most of the known world and sort of united everything under the Roman Empire. And ever since, a series of iron-fisted emperors and Caesars and generals uh, and kings, they ruled this empire. And all of them, when you, when you read things written about them or things that they had written about themselves, they all talk about sort of these moments where they pine to have been more like Alexander because he was the epitome of an incredible leader someone who knew how to wield power well. That's what they thought. And the head of Rome in all of these years ruled with absolution. There was no opposition. There was no due process. There was no checks and balances system. It didn't really work that way. It was one person sort of doing as they pleased. And this emperor wasn't just considered royalty. He was considered divinity, right? He declared himself God in human form, oftentimes calling himself the son of God. And you had no choice but to do what you were told. And there were a lot of instructions. Like the people during this time in history were universally, almost universally underpaid and overtaxed. They were living on the edge of starvation and poverty. They were dying. They were deep in debt. And yet, what were they going to do about it? I mean, they, 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 were, they were trapped. Their hands were tied because the Romans had a very specific style of leadership. They led through brute force, through violence, through intimidation, through immediate and extreme aggression. And anybody who stood up to them and their way of doing things was immediately put to death. And oftentimes it wasn't just you who suffered if you spoke up, you popped off, you pushed back, it wasn't just you they killed. Oftentimes it was your entire family, maybe even your entire city, just to prove a point. In fact, um, one, probably one of the most famous um, ancient uh, Jewish historians, Josephus, famously writes this. He said that the, the Roman soldiers, out of rage and hatred for all who challenged them, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different postures. And so great was their number that the space uh, could not be found for the crosses nor the crosses for the bodies. Now, some of us, we, we may think like the Jesus story is something sort of unique in, in the aspect of he was crucified. And then maybe they just did this like once or twice to a few big time people. The Romans loved crucifying people. They were really good at it and they did it a lot. And, and in fact, there, this is a scene that represents what would happen quite a few times. There's enough historical record for us to know that there were moments where if there was thought to have been an uprising or a rebellion or a pushback, they would just arrest and beat all of the people that were even loosely affiliated with it. And they would crucify people in mass. If you look deep into this picture, it almost seems like the crosses go on into infinity. And it would have felt like they did if you were there in person. They would, there are records of them uh, coming in and crucifying entire villages of people all at once in a single day. 
And as if that's not bad enough, one of the things that they were famous for doing is that they wanted this threat to be as intimidating as is possible. And so what they would do is, as the sun began to set, they would take torches and they would light the bases of these crosses on fire. So that in addition to the agony of hanging on and dying on a cross, you would also slowly burn to death. And if you looked through the roads that went from your village back to Rome, what you would see is a trail of burning crosses and people screaming. And the message was clear, don't mess with Rome or else you're next. This is an intimidating environment in which to live. And the people, God's people, the Jewish people who lived in this environment, they longed for a savior, somebody who would swoop in and save them from tyranny. And that's exactly what you would do if you were them too. You would hope and pray that someone would come in and free you from the injustice that was happening. They they called this unknown future figure the Messiah. And there's all sorts of of writings and, um, and prophecies about this figure in the Old Testament, including a passage in Isaiah that, that often gets read at Christmas time, a passage that we've made the, the theme verse for this series. And it says this, Isaiah chapter nine, verse six, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this wasn't like a little-known prophecy that only a few people knew about. This was something that everybody knew. I mean, you would grow up as a young Jewish kid, and this was one of a handful of verses that was echoed again and again and again to you. And I feel like if I were one of these people living in this time, there's one of these nicknames that I would have zeroed in on that would have given me this spike of excitement and anticipation and hope. And it's this one mighty God. I would have thought about that phrase probably disproportionately more than the others because that's what I would want. I would want a mighty God. I would want someone to swoop in who is powerful enough to take back this country, our country, for God by force. I would want someone to come in to avenge my suffering, to hand out all of the proper punishment due to the people who deserve it, to make the abusers pay for what they've done, and to put me, us, our people back on top to exact revenge. I would imagine that if I lived in this time in history, that I would lay in bed at night, that I would see the glow in my window of the recent crop of rebels who were burning on a cross on a hill nearby. And I would imagine myself summoning images to my imagination of the ancestral stories I grew up hearing about the all-powerful creator God who, who could flood the earth at will, who could pour plagues out onto oppressors without even trying who could lead lost people through a desert with a ferocious pillar of fire. I would meditate on the fierce images of these mighty king warriors that I've been told stories about since I've been born, of King David, of Samson, 
of these people who took justice into their own hands. And I would daydream about the time that I believe was coming in the future where our version of Alexander the Great was gonna rise up and overthrow the government and make people pay. See, the question at this time in history and the question that the Christmas story brings to bear is not, is God mighty? The the question is far more interesting and, and deep than that. It's how would the God of infinite might intervene in human history? If God was going to send a Messiah, a representative of himself in human form, if he was going to pre-package power in a person, what would that person look like? And what would that person do with all of their might? This is what people couldn't wait to see. And I'll tell you, like, it wasn't a mystery. This is what everybody wanted. Everybody wanted King David part two. They wanted the sequel. This time it's personal, right? Because David was a warrior, right? This picture represents a story that was told so many times, like when they were threatened by the Philistines and David rose up and he like, you know, God was with him and he like tore down, he cut off the giant's head and he held it up and they overthrew the army. I mean, David got stuff done. David made people pay. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the Messiah to be a David type. And yet that's not what they got. What they got was this. They got a baby. A baby being born in complete humility and vulnerability to humanity, to peasants. And to make matters even worse, not only did they get a baby, which a lot of them were like, maybe it's just a starter kit. Maybe this is, maybe we're going to backtrack. We're going to go from here back to David. He's going to grow up and be a David type. But it didn't go that way. This baby would grow up to do this, to hang on a cross, to allow himself to be conquered and crucified on behalf of his persecutors. Now, maybe you're thinking the same thing that the people during this time thought. I don't get it. God, what are you doing? Remember how you said, mighty God? <laughs> what is this? Like to them, it, it, was, it was confusing. It was, it was disorienting. It was, it was anger-inducing. Because they'd been praying for John Wick. And what they got was Jesus of Nazareth. And you cannot get two more different characters. But it was a mistake. This was God's plan. God did this on purpose. God chose to do things this way because for him, there's no better picture of the purpose of power than a birth in a manger and a death on the cross. Because real power is reflected in restraint. Real power is reflected in embracing vulnerability, generosity, and service. It wasn't what people were looking for, but it was exactly what God had always intended to send them because it was a reflection of who he is. It still blows my mind that when God chose to reveal himself to humanity as a human, the first thing that he wanted people to know about him is that he willingly makes himself vulnerable. 
of all of the things that you could declare and share and show, why that? Like this, think about this. This is the first thing that the mighty God does with all of his unfathomable power when he comes to earth. He takes all of that power and he lays it down by becoming a baby. Listen, you cannot get any more vulnerable than a baby. My wife and I have had three of them. I've seen this happen multiple times. This is one of them. This is Tegan when she's about, this is like five-month-old pictures back when she looked like uh, pebbles from the Flintstones. She had that little spurt of red hair in the middle. And it was like a little bow. And when Tegan was born, she was actually born a little bit early and she was underweight and they um, induced Gretchen so that she could be born early because they were nervous um, that uh, she had some umbilical cord problems like wrapped around her and they were scared for it. And so it was like a nerve wracking thing. And she came out and she was extra tiny, small, and that they still let us take her home. I remember like we, we signed all this paperwork and we, we have this baby and they put the baby in Gretchen's lap. And, and I was, I like, they walked us out and I'm pushing a wheelchair and we get out there and they're like, goodbye. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what? What, do, what, do, what are we supposed to do? And they're like, just, you go home now live your lives. And I'm like, are we, are they going to send a responsible adult with us? How does this work? I don't feel like we should do this. This is not okay. Right. I don't, we can't take care of this kid. Right. Like I am not you. I've been in here for a day. Right. And you guys know, I probably should not be taking care of a kid. And they're like, yeah, we've met your wife though. We think we're going to be fine. If she just put her in charge, you know, And it's the same sort of fear like every parent feels when they go home with their first child. There is this panic because you have this realization of the responsibility of caring for the vulnerability of this child. You realize how frail and dependent they are on you. That if you don't feed and change and clothe and bathe and burp them and snuggle them, they'll die. And there's a heaviness to that, appropriately so. Like you're aware that like a little bit of neglect can do a lot of damage in a baby's life. And here's the profundity of all this, that God decides to be born as a baby to people who have the power to neglect him and end him. That's vulnerability. What an odd strategy. Why would the mighty God do this? And it's not that he was just born a baby. He was born a baby in slavery, in oppression, into captivity. We keep throwing this word around, so I want to just give you a definition so we're on the same page. Vulnerability. This is what vulnerability means, the dictionary definition. Vulnerability is the state of being exposed to the possibility of being attacked or harmed either physically or emotionally, okay? That doesn't sound exciting. Number two, the feeling of being uncertain, unsafe, at risk, or emotionally exposed. Some of you have never actually examined this definition before, and you're like, you know what? Now that I know what it really is, not for me. <laughs> I do, no thank you. That sounds, I don't want any part in that. 
That sounds crazy. Why would anyone do that? That, that sounds like the scariest thing I could imagine encountering. Personally, I would rather hang on to my power. That's just a me thing. I prefer strength, okay? I prefer safety. I prefer skepticism and suspicion. I prefer defensiveness. I prefer double-checking everything and everyone. But this is how God approaches humanity with vulnerability, Because as it turns out, God is way more interested in connection than he is in control. If you've ever wondered like what it is that God wants like from you, it's a relationship with you. And here's what God understands about you, his creation, about the way that you work. He understands that there is no intimacy without vulnerability that until you actually let your guard down and let people know you, until you let people in enough that they have the ability to hurt you, you don't actually have an intimate connection with them. And so how does God respond to this? God lets his guard down and he allows us to choose to love and accept and believe in and follow him or not. Because God understands that if if you're not free to choose, then you're not free to love. And this is what God is after. This is what God is about, love. It's crazy to think about, like everyone that you have a close relationship with has the ability to wound you. They have the power to reject you. I just made some of you very paranoid right now. You're just like, whoa, I gotta watch my back this Christmas. But I mean, I'm just, as an exercise, like I don't, hopefully you don't need to be nervous about these people, but I'm just telling you, just as a matter of fact, like, like the people that are actually close to you in life, they know where you're weak and insecure. They know where like you are exploitable, but instead of using these things against you, they make a choice. They make a choice to love and honor and respect you. And God wants a similar relationship with you, which is why he's vulnerable with you and why he invites you to be vulnerable with him in return. But here's the beautiful thing about God. He always goes first. And we love that God is this way. Let me rephrase that. We love that God is this way with us. We don't always like that God is this way with people who have hurt us. And we definitely aren't interested in God asking us to treat people this way who've hurt us. But as Jesus grows from a baby to a boy and from a boy to a man and from a man to a traveling teacher, a rabbi, it starts to look like this is exactly what he's asking of his followers. He says this in Matthew chapter five, verse 38. He's teaching, he says, you have heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, what you need to know is everybody in this audience, right, who grew up in the context I described earlier is thinking like, yes, we have heard that. That is one of our favorite verses. We love it, okay? Because we have been waiting for a savior that is gonna swoop in and help us pluck out some eyes and pull some teeth, okay? Because we have taken on an awful lot of abuse over the years and we're sick of it. We're ready to be avenged. We want a Messiah to come in and make somebody pay. And you would think like, 
I mean, come on, how prevalent was this? I mean, not like the disciples, right? Yeah, the disciples. People that had been with Jesus for a long time still had trouble understanding his way and what he was there to do. There were these two uh, guys, uh, James and John, they had this nickname. They were called the Sons of Thunder, which I love because it makes them sound like a WWE tag team. And, um, and if you read stories about them, they were kind of like a WWE tag team. And there's this moment where they're traveling with Jesus. They're going from town to town. And Jesus is like trying to preach and tell people about what God is like and preach the gospel and tell them the good news. And, and uh, they go to this one town and, and people don't like them and they don't like Jesus. And they're like talking trash on him. And they, there's rumblings that there's this plot that they want to run him out of town, maybe even kill him, run him off a cliff. And the, here's the response to these loving, grace-filled followers of Jesus. In Luke chapter nine, verse 54, the sons of thunder say, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? That's their first impulse, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Fire burning your village for a snide comment. Like that goes together, right? And it says that Jesus turns and he rebukes them. In other words, he's just like, are you guys serious? No, no. What about anything about me has led you to believe that that is gonna be okay? No, we're not doing that. That's not my way. That's not what we do. Because again, Unlike us, like these are not the sorts of stories that Jesus is interested in. He does not care to enact a revenge plot. And there's all sorts of reasons for this, but I think a big one is because when someone hurts us and we respond to them just like them, we become them. And I wonder if you have noticed this tendency to move from hating something to wanting revenge for that something to becoming that something. I think this reveals to us like the thing that we don't wanna talk about, which is that we don't really want to do things Jesus way. We want Jesus to do things our way. We're not interested in his idea of power. We want him to use power the way we've seen it used. We just want him to use it against the people we don't like. But that's not his way. That's not what he's about. See, revenge often turns the oppressed into oppressors. And we see this cycle happening over and over again throughout human history. And what Jesus is trying to get people to understand is that the only way to truly be free from them is to avoid becoming like them. It's to refuse to respond the way they do. And so Jesus gives his followers an alternative way to wield power, especially in moments where they feel particularly powerless. And it is not their favorite teaching from him. And this is what he goes on to say. He says this, you've heard it said an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who wanna borrow. I can't even imagine how offensive this would have sounded to the people that Jesus was originally talking to. Because he's essentially saying, something that is true, but incredibly hard to hear. He's saying that you may not be free to do less than what is being demanded of you at the moment, but you know what you are free to do? You're always free to do more. 
He's saying like there, there's a certain amount of power that people can exert over you externally, but you're, you're never completely powerless internally. There's always something that you can control. Your attitude, your outlook, your expectations, your response. I don't think the people Jesus was talking to wanted to hear him say those things. You know why I think that? Because I don't want to hear Jesus say those things. Because here's my issue. I don't want to learn to control what's within my control. I want to control everything else. I have made this very clear to Jesus in my prayers to him. But as it turns out, that's not what Jesus is offering us. Because the reality of Jesus coming to earth, God sending himself to earth in human form was for a reason that we need, but maybe didn't want. Jesus didn't come to save us from our circumstances. He came to save us from ourselves. And the process of doing this, he he doesn't want us to abandon power or abuse power. He wants us to learn how to properly use power. And this is why he breaks it down in very specific terms to these people in their circumstances in their day. Roman soldiers at this time period, they had the right to hit any Jewish person that stood up to, rebelled against, or resisted them. But there were limits to it. They were, they were forbidden from hitting you more than once if you didn't fight back. And so Jesus tells his followers something that is genius. He tells them not to fight back or cower, but in that moment to stand up and boldly look that person in the eye and present to them the other cheek. He's trying to tell them like, in this moment, when you feel powerless, you still have some power to wield. And you ought to use it to force that other person to face themselves and what they've become without diminishing yourself in the process. Standing up and turning the other cheek is a way of both embracing your power and your vulnerability at the same exact time. The the Romans notoriously overtaxed the Jews. They pushed them to the, the brink of poverty and bankruptcy, but instead of banding together, and being like, guys, it's us against them. Oftentimes they turned on each other like because they had so little, they would become really tight-fisted with the little that they had. They became petty about everything. And there's all these accounts of them stealing from and suing each other because they lived in a state of fear and scarcity. And Jesus in this moment is telling them, like, don't point to someone else's greed as a justification for your own. Instead, when someone demands something of you, give them more than they're asking for. Because they can, they can, they have restrictions. Like they can demand so much, but you can always go above and beyond and be more generous than they expect. There's a subversive power in this response. 
soldiers during this time period, they could, they could legally ask you to carry their pack for up to one mile and then they had to release you. And Jesus is telling them to go a second mile because if you went another mile voluntarily, it was a way of saying like, I refuse to be enslaved by you because I choose to serve you. The first mile I did out of obligation, the second mile I will choose to do out of intention. You don't get to take from me because I freely give it away. It was a way of subverting power. It was a way of saying like, Jesus saying like, I I want you as my followers to commit to always doing more good than anyone expects or asks of you. And sometimes we, we feel frustrated by these things because we're just like, oh, I guess you just let people walk all over us. No, that's not what this is. This is something different altogether. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone do any of these things in real life. It doesn't feel like you think it's gonna feel. I have. I don't know if you've ever seen someone step up and absorb a punch that was meant for someone else. I don't know if you've ever seen someone that people have continuously taken from and taken from and taken from determine to be a person of character who is still generous with every single cent they still have. I don't know if you've ever seen someone who has had so much demanded of them, who continues to choose to serve above and beyond and make the world better instead of getting people back. When you see these things, they don't feel like weakness. They feel like strength. And this is what God promises us, not to bail us out of our circumstances, but to give us his strength to walk through them with power as it was intended to be used. Not to overpower or to oppress, but to empower people to see who they really are and who God has made them to be. One thing that I don't think most people realize about Jesus is that Jesus lived his entire life a slave. That might sound strange to you, but Jesus was born into and lived his entire life in captivity. These captives were given select freedoms, but make no mistake, he was a slave. It doesn't seem like this because he seemed free because of his mentality. And he never attempted to overthrow the empire. He never attempted to exact revenge. He never uh, attempted to ignite a political rebellion because that's not who he was. He believed that real power was reflected in restraint. And guess what? He was right because his manger and his cross changed the course of human history. You know what I've noticed about the end of almost every single revenge movie? the hero still isn't happy. Because they haven't created anything. They've just added to the destruction. The reason they're not happy, there's always this scene where like they walk away sort of like sad and heavy because of what they've done and what it means. And the fact that it did not 
fill them up in the way it was supposed to. They thought, man, if I could just get, if I could just get the power, if I just had the might and I could use it to take what I want and get what I'm owed, I would feel like I should. And it doesn't work because revenge isn't ever as satisfying as we want it to be, which is why Jesus was never interested in it, which is why Jesus gave his life not for revenge, but for reconciliation and restoration. Jesus didn't use his power to get people back. He used his power to bring people close. And this is the question that I have for you this Christmas. I wonder when you reflect on your story, like who might Jesus be inviting you to serve, to be generous to, to be vulnerable with instead of seeking revenge on in big and small ways? Like what would it look like for you to trust your mighty God to help you wield power wisely? Not to abandon it, not to abuse it, but to leverage it for his purposes. Jesus seemed to think that it would change everything. And although this version of a Messiah was not what the people then wanted, it was everything they needed. It's everything that we need still. And this is my heart for you this Christmas, that you would embrace Jesus, a baby in a manger, a man hanging tortured on a cross, a God-man demonstrating ultimate vulnerability, service, and generosity. And I want to encourage you to allow that to define power for you. Because that's what it truly is. Would you bow your heads across this room? I just want to pray this into your life today. God, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. God, so many of the, the things that we get caught up in and the things that we want, some of these things have little to do with you and more to do with us trying to avenge the hurtful things that have happened to us. And yet your way is better. It's higher than our way. And God, I pray that we would have the courage to trust you as the mighty God who displays power through service and generosity and vulnerability. And God, may we be people who reflect you and in doing so, repair and restore and rejuvenate and reconcile and redeem that which has been broken by an abuse of power, by leveraging it the way it was meant. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, 
You can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless. Thank you.